As a kid, I used to like to go to the public pool and we'd throw change into the deep end and dive down and see how much we could get and pick up in, in one breath. You guys have probably done that. Many of you kids have done that as well. But back in the old days when they used to have high dives at pools, uh, I think attorneys and insurance companies pretty much killed that, um, that, that we had a, like a 12 to 14 foot area where we could go down. And that was pretty challenging to go that deep and to go and fish for those coins. And we're not going to swim deep today, but I'm asking you to go deep metaphorically into your heart today. Uh, I know it's a, it's a day where, you know, we come in, we, we stroll in, we learn a new song, everybody's pretty quiet because you don't know the words. It's kind of, a, kind of just a sleepy morning. And it's going to be easy just to kind of go through the motions and just allow this to go in one ear, pretty much out the other, and then kind of leave and nothing really changes about life. And I want to encourage you today is, while all the Bible is amazing, it's inspired, and it's life-changing, today is just a passage that deals with the topic of worship that Jesus, by accident, so to speak, comes into this conversation. And I think there's so much here for us just to build our life around. And so I, I took today, as we look at, back at this conversation Jesus is having with this lady at the well, we don't even know her name, that we will understand more and more of what worship is and how it should impact our life. And there's no really perfect definition of worship, but one definition that I came across that's worthy of, of saying is true worship is the priority we place on who God is in our lives and where God is on our list of priorities. Let's read that one more time. True worship is the priority that you place upon God in your life and where God is on your list of priorities. So in this fascinating conversation that would be considered culturally inappropriate with this woman in John chapter 4, we're going to learn today what God has to say about worship. So let's pray and we'll look at John 4, 15 through 26. John 4, 15 through 26. God, your word is truth. Your words are life. And God, uh, they have the ability just to cut through hearts that are hard, hearts that are unwilling to bend, hearts that are tainted by sin and, and full of selfish ambition. And God, your spirit takes the words in the lives of your children and use those to draw us closer to you. And God, as we look at worship today, God, I pray that you'll help us to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to you, God. That's our spiritual act of worship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So John 4, and this kind of to set the, the, the picture again, Jesus, back in verse 4, it said he had to go through this area called Samaria, and he didn't have to go through it. In fact, most Jews avoided this area because they were culturally unclean, the Samaritans were. They just did not want, the Jews did not want to be around these people, but Jesus took the direct tra track right through Samaria because he had a divine appointment there, and he needed to talk to this woman, and here we are today reading this account and learning so much from this account. So let's go back to verse 13 and see Jesus is breaking the rules of his culture, having this conversation. Let's go back to pick up a few verses just for context. Verse 13, Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. This water that the woman offered to get him there at the well, 
Uh, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water wailing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may not be thirsty or have to come back here and draw water. So the lady clearly hears this in a non-spiritual way, in a non-spiritual perspective. She, her heart hasn't been changed. She doesn't know God. And so therefore, all she's thinking about in this is her selfish interests. If Jesus gives me this special kind of water, then I'm not going to have to come back here to this well anymore. I'm not going to carry my bucket. I'm not going to have to walk here alone day after today and take these trips to the well. And so all she's thinking about is non-spiritually what this is going to do for her. And I think we're tempted to do that as well. We can look at worship as an opportunity to get goodies from God. We think that some way that if we do the right things, then God's almost in our debt entitled to give us the good things of life. But how we miss the truth of the gospel is hard to believe. I mean, for years and generations uh, in America and throughout Europe, this prosperity sort of gospel was taught where Jesus clearly says in verses like Matthew seven fourteen that the way is hard that leads to eternal life. It's a hard road to eternal life. Jesus, following Jesus, doesn't make your problems go away. What he does, he makes you go away. He makes me go away. We step out of the picture because we no longer live, but Christ lives in us and through us. And so it's our job to remove ourselves and let him live through us. But some way we've made it be that our problems get go away when we follow Jesus. Well, in many ways, your problems just start because the world uh, hates Jesus. He de they despise truth. And so more and more persecution comes oftentimes when we do follow Jesus. And so only the work of the Holy Spirit can move the home, human heart to see the beauty and the greatness of God and respond to Him in a manner that's worthy of His name. Only the Spirit can do that. Only the Spirit can break these hard hearts to cause us to see the goodness of God. And so at this point, understandably, all she thought was, this sounds like a good offer. I don't have to make these trips anymore. It's going to be more convenient to me. Give me this water, Jesus. Now, we have this little event coming up December 10th called Phil by Night. The Phil by Night. I was telling Mitch this morning, maybe some people don't know where the name came from. The shepherds were in the field at night, right? So it's a field by night where we hope to encounter the glory of God. Now, we know those who have been involved in this for a period of time, you know that this is Grace's Christmas party to the community because you have people who come on this campus who never set foot on this campus all the other days of the year. This is an opportunity to come and to just receive from grace. And the more that we cook and bake and make, the more that we can give away. And it's easy, though, to look at the crowd that shows up or the people in line asking for the next thing and filling their pockets with cookies to think, well, is this really fulfilling its purpose? Well, let me just say a couple of things. The gospel is clearly presented. Jesus is lifted up. And much prayer goes into this event because we know that it's only through God and His power that hearts are changed to the gospel. And so we can do all the stuff 
But the Holy Spirit is the one who makes the change in the person's life. And so as we come as vessels willing to be used by God, then God is the one that does the heavy lifting, and he is the one that takes the gospel and uses it in people's lives. Sure, there's a desire for materialism from people. There's a just blind by temporary pleasures, as we all are. But we ask the Holy Spirit to break through that and to allow them to see the goodness of the gospel. And so our desire is to get out of the way and let the gospel do its work. And, and as Chip kind of alluded to, people, some people receive it, whether it be at the hymn sing or at Phil by Night, and some people choose to reject it. Our job is just to be ambassadors. So let's go back to the scene of the well. So the woman isn't getting what Jesus is saying at all. And so he goes in a different direction with her. Verse 16, Jesus says to her, I need you to go and call your husband to come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. So interestingly enough about Jesus' request, there's several layers of this. There's a cultural layer, and then there's clearly a strategic layer. Culturally, it wasn't proper for this lady to be talking to a man unless her husband was present. But strategically, Jesus put her in a dilemma from which she could not free herself. This was a dilemma where she had to admit her need, that there was a need in her heart. So Jesus pushes her beyond this superficial conversation that's going on where it's just about, I'm going to make it easier, she hears, just to get water to Jesus is going to show her her great spiritual need. Have you ever had that conversation with people before? People will get in trouble. Maybe you've been in trouble. I, I use this expression with somebody this past week who has found himself in a pretty heavy dilemma. I said, God lives at the end of your rope. And I use that saying a lot. It stuck with me when I heard it when I was 19 years old. God lives at the end of your rope. But we have a way of making it appear like we're at the end of the rope when we're really holding on to just some little threads at that end of the rope. And so I don't know whether this gentleman I met with or not was holding on to some threads at the bottom. Only God knows that. But unlike me, Jesus knows. He's aware of this lady and her situation and how that she is going to be hesitant to come clean. So in 17, Jesus says to her, 17b, you're right in saying you have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one you're with now is not your husband. What you've said is... It's true. So Jesus exposes her sin. Jesus puts her into a situation where she has to acknowledge and own her condition. And whether that's an unbeliever who has to come to that moment of truth, or as believers, we really need to come to that moment of truth every day, that we, left to ourselves, will create systems to justify the sins that we want to do. You guys know I talk about a lot, uh, New Morning Mercies by Paul Tripp. I try to read this most every morning. And a few mornings ago, he wrote this. He said, one of the most important operations of God's grace is to give us eyes to see our sin and hearts that are willing to confess it. If your eyes are open and you see yourself with accuracy, and if your heart is humbly willing to admit what your eyes see, you know that glorious, rescuing, forgiving, transforming grace has visited you. Why? Because what you're doing is simply not 
natural for sinners. Sinners don't naturally see their sin, and sinners for sure don't own their sin, and sinners absolutely do not confess their sin unless the work of the Holy Spirit and God uses His supernatural truth to open our eyes. We know that truth to be true. I mean, we know that God has to be the one to reveal it because in our natural state, we don't want to deal with our sin. Just like the woman didn't, didn't want to deal with her sin. I would rather just tell Jesus, you know, I got no husband. Leave me alone. I'd rather not deal with this than to have to go deep and, and talk about the things of her heart. But we, we do this. We know. But why do we act shocked when sinners sin? Why do we act surprised? I mean, parents, honestly. I can't believe you would do that. You know, really, that, when you say that, that's probably more of a memory issue with you as a parent than it is with your child because the problem, because if you just maybe think back to your teenage years, you probably did that and much more, right? And so you, you, you like, I would never do that. Well, you might want to reconsider that statement, right? Like, we are blind or we choose to be blind to our sins, we create systems that make us feel better about our sins. And so Jesus, while he had this remarkable openness with sinners in his society, he could just really work with them, deal with them, eat with them. He was, un, he was unfazed by what the culture's expectation was there. He was always calling them to repent of their sins. And so that's what Jesus is doing here. He doesn't shame the woman. She, he doesn't reject her. He doesn't give condescending statements to make her feel terrible, what he does is he begins to just go deeper with her, expose her heart, and display to her her true need. He's helping her understand the true dimensions of, of her thirst, what she really is after. You've had five husbands. How's that working out for you? Maybe Jesus, we don't know this, but maybe Jesus really just like lets the moment settle and begins to talk to her and just shows her that he knows everything that's in her heart. Hey, you remember your first husband, Joe, right? Yeah. Do you remember him? Um, you, you thought that was like going to fulfill all your thirsts. You thought for sure that he was just going to bring just love conquers all. Yes, you were very young and, and you were naive for sure, but you thought that this was the one that would last forever. And he abandoned you and she hangs her head. How about number two? You're on the rebound. He comes along. He tells you all the great things. You have three children by him. It looks good. He goes off to battle. He dies. Husband number two. Didn't fulfill your thirst, did it? How about number three? Or four? You thought for sure. Number five, right? You're, you're older. You're wiser. You're going to make better decisions this time. But it's the same old song and dance. And Jesus just reveals her heart and her high hopes that she had and her dreams that she had, that she put all her stock into these guys and what they were going to deliver to her and quench her thirst. And yet, she said, I don't have a husband. Yep, the one you're living with now, he's not your husband, is he? Because maybe you are wiser now, right? I'm, I'm not going to commit my life to him. Because I've learned what happens. So I'm going to play it safe here. I'm going to guard my heart. I'm going to protect my heart. 
And Jesus says, I'm exposing your sin. It's funny, I deal with this quite a bit. I, 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 I was thinking of three specific times in the last year. One guy, he wanted to have coffee with me, and he, we sat down and we talked, and he began to tell me about how that Satan was like evident in his house. Like he, he, There's weird stuff happening, strange happenings, and he's sensing all this spiritual stuff here, and I'm listening, and, and then I, I begin to ask him questions and pry a little into his life. And come to find out, he's living with his girlfriend. And, and I said, don't you think that, like, before we argue and discuss and talk about, like, satanic forces and those influences, don't you think that, like, the known sin in your life you need to deal with? And, and he literally said, and this is a guy who, like, grew up in church. He's like, never thought about that. And, and it just surprises me sometimes how that we can justify the things that we do. I had, I had another situation where I was talking to a, a guy that he was, man, he, he moved here. He was eager to do ministry. Like he had these big plans and he talked to us about like all the other things that he did that were like huge in this other place he lived. And we began to just have a conversation with him and his wife, but find out he, he's, she, they're not married and they're living together. And I, and I said, need to deal with that. You see, we have a way of just blindly thinking like, okay, God's cool with, with these things I want to do when he's not. And, and that's what Jesus is showing her, that you're trying to fulfill your thirst, you're trying to quench your thirst with things that will not satisfy. They will not bring you what you're after. Husband one, two, three, four, five, and boyfriend have all failed you. So Jesus He's showing her, he's displaying to her what the truth is of this situation. And right now, maybe some of you are thinking, well, you don't know my situation, or, you know, things are not as clear as they seem to be, or maybe you're, th you're thinking to yourself, God's okay with this or that, or does the Bible really say, and we make these excuses up because we're unwilling to deal with the hard truth that Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you take up your cross. Deny yourself. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And it's going to be hard, and it's going to be difficult, and it's going to take sacrifice. But what about these waters that are flowing out of us, the rivers of living water? That doesn't sound hard and difficult. That sounds great, Pastor John. It sounds like wonderful. Which one is it? Is it hard or is it difficult, I mean, is it, or is it rivers of living water and joy? Well, I, I go, always go back to the Apostle Paul when I think about these truths right here. The letter of letters that we have about joy and living for joy and living in joy is a book penned by the Apostle Paul called Philippians that was written when he was in prison. And he talked about joy and he experienced joy, and he told firsthand account about knowing that Jesus can provide everything he needed, even in his situation. So that tells me, even though things are hard and difficult, and Jesus isn't just a little add-on to your life to make your life better and more fulfilling, that he is your life, that Paul tells me that we can experience great joy when Jesus is King and Lord of our lives, when our life is centered upon him. And so we're going to face temptations. We're going to experience hardships. 
But when the glory of God is our focus, living for Him becomes our source of joy. And so, yes, it's hard to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, as Scripture says. It's difficult to say, I'm going to quit that or give up that relationship. Because eventually it's going to dry up. That well is going to dry up. But right now, it seems like it's providing what you need. But eventually it will. And Jesus says, I'm here to expose these false thirsts, these false ways of, of quenching your thirst, and show you that I'm the only source of living water. Well, we're not sure exactly what the lady's angle is on her response in verse 19, but it probably is getting a little too personal for her. Look at verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worship on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place to, to worship. So what's going on here, right? I mean, like totally like, okay, let's change the subject, Jesus. Let's don't deal with this personal stuff. Okay, I've heard enough. I'd rather just kind of, let's talk about religion. Let's talk about theology for, for a minute. It's so, so true what people do. And she wants to know the truth that this age-old thing that's been being debated and discussed for years for, with her people, which one do we worship? Is it this temple that we worship at, which was built about the fourth century before Christ over here on this mountain in Samaria, or do we have to go to Jerusalem and worship? Which one is it? You remember I said that Samaritans had a separate uh, Torah that was like their own, and they had a separate theology and way of looking at the Bible, and they, they were basically what I would call a cult. And so it's definitely strange that she's changing the subject here on him. And look what, he, what she says in verse 20 again. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and you say that it was in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to go and to worship. And so what's she doing? Deflecting? Or maybe, maybe she's saying, look, you got me. You know me. You're a prophet, right? You, you know my heart. You see my heart. And she was beginning to feel some conviction, and she knows that Jesus is a Jew, and she's like, do I go to the temple in Jerusalem? Is that where I'm supposed to go to, to confess and to worship God and get my heart right with him? Is that where I'm supposed to go? Maybe that was her angle. Regardless of why she changed the subject, Jesus responds, and he gives this amazing insight how he is going to change everything. How he didn't just simply come to provide clarity to where you worship and the old system that's there for them. He came to demolish that system. He came through his death and resurrection to totally just wipe away the way that we thought and we perceived worship. Look what he says in verse 21. He says, The hour, woman, believe me, the hour is coming. And if you're familiar with the Gospels, you know what the hour is, right? The hour, that's the phrase that Jesus uses for his death and resurrection. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So what he's saying is God isn't contained geographically, and he's not contained in a certain structure. The salvation isn't found at the temple in Jerusalem. It's found at a cross. And salvation isn't found through religious ceremonies, but Jesus said it's found in me and who I am. And then he clarifies to her, he says, you worship what you don't know. He said, you Samaritans, clearly your worship is wrong. All right, You're not worshiping the true God. You're not following the true God. 
for we know that salvation is from the Jews. Jesus wanted to make that clear, right? Because Jesus is a Jew. He's the son of David. It's through his lineage. Jesus is bringing salvation to the people. And with all the problems that Jesus exposes about the Jewish way of worshiping and doing things, the one thing that we have to give them, at least they could say that they were worshiping the true God, not so much for the Samaritans. And so he's saying, if you want truth, it comes through Jerusalem, not Samaria. But this is all ending anyway, because I'm doing something new and something different. Everything's changing through me. And so he's not going to engage in this debate, because both places of worship will be obsolete soon. Verse 23 again. But the hour is coming. He uses that phrase. The hour is coming. It's coming, and it's now here. He's saying, God is standing in front of you, lady. I'm here. I'm standing in front of you. And when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. I love the depths of this accidental conversation that happens to come up, right? It was an accident. God gave this to us. I was reading... A few days ago, in, we used a Psalms book by Tim Keller as our family devotions, and we were reading together Psalm 119. He's in Psalm 119, you know, the longest chapter in the Bible. We've been there for a while, great, incredible passage. And the verse was verse 130 of uh, Psalm 119, and the little phrase which I could have just like read right by was, the unfolding of your words gives light. The unfolding of your words give life. And Tim Keller writes this in the devotion. He says, This is why the Bible unfolds its depths for the, those patient enough to plummet. While the scripture is clear enough in its basic memory, I'm sorry, basic message for a child to understand, it will not yield its astonishing riches except to trusting, obedient, diligent study and sustained reflection. If this price is paid, however, the cost is infinitely greater. The return, I'm sorry, the return is infinitely greater than the cost. So he's saying if you're willing to work at it, the scripture just keeps unfolding. The depths of the riches of it just reveal itself. And I don't think that's any more on display fully than right here in this passage of scripture. When Jesus is given these messianic hints and he's saying the hour is coming the cross is coming and then he gives us this incredible uh, view of worship he says the hour is coming and it's here now when true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth for the father is seeking such people to worship him why god is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth so jesus in, is inaugurating, I said, a new way where we don't go to this location or that location to a physical place to worship, but the Holy Spirit's going to come and dwell in believers, and He's going to flow out of believers, and Jesus is going to change everything because worship will now take place through Him. It's not God's presence at a location. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. So God's people everywhere will become the temple of the Holy Spirit. You get that? That God's, Jesus is saying, this is all going to change. And, and, and that's just level one here, right, of unfolding. That's level one. But look, why do we still think this is true? We think that we go to worship. And we think that the church building, and it works well that we're just in a gymnasium, right? It helps remove this thought. 
that the church building like it has some mystical, supernatural presence of God that exists more there than any other place. When Jesus clearly said and tells us a new day is coming, and it's not about where you go to worship, the Holy Spirit resides in you. You're the temple. The church is the temple. And we're not confined by space. And we're not kept in ceremonial worship where we just have to do certain things and follow certain things in order for God to be present. God is present in us and through us as a church. Level one, and we still aren't, we don't get that. We've been just, I think Satan has brainwashed us to think that some way we're more spiritual when we're in church. You know, have you ever said this to your children? We're in church. Don't do that. We're in church. I'm sorry, but they shouldn't do that anywhere if they shouldn't do it here, right? I mean, if it's wrong, it's wrong. I'm, obviously, there's a certain decorum that you should have in a public place around people, and that's not the point here. The point is we think that, oh, the still and holy, because God, God's, God's here in a special way. No, God resides among his people. And it's always baffled me how that we culturally accept one thing for Sunday morning, but then we go to K-group, and we have a whole different demeanor completely. Is God less active in K-group around a circle than he is in church? Is he more sacred in this building than he is in your home and your living room where the people of God are gathered? There lies the power of the Spirit to work and manifest himself. In our hearts, the temple, we are the temple. So true worship is about the heart. It's heart level versus these external observances, these external ceremonies. But he goes on to say, he says, true worship must be in spirit, so we must engage the whole person. So unless there is real passion for God, there's no worship of God. Unless there's real passion from the heart, a delight in God. Because, and, and then verse 24, he says, God is spirit, and we're to worship him in spirit. What, what else does that mean? Let's go another layer. What did God tell the Israelites? He said, don't make any graven images. Don't make anything that, that, that you use to worship me. All right, if you're from a Catholic background, you know this has pretty much been ignored, right? And so God clearly says, don't do this because you worship me in spirit. And so it's demeaning to his greatness and his holiness if we attempt to shrink him down to something that we can grasp our mind around and use this iconic representation for worship. That's what he's saying. He says, God is spirit, and you worship him in spirit, and you worship him in, in truth. And we could go on and on. Let's go to truth for a second. We must worship God for who he really is. That's the point he's making to the Samaritan woman. He's saying, you don't worship God. You're, you're worshiping a false God. Just because you say some of the right things and believe in some of the right people in our history... That you're, you're not worshiping. It's not all mountain, all this, everybody goes up the mountain and we all end up the same God. Islam is not Christianity. It's not true faith. It's a false faith. And you need to be aware of that, that it's not just everything just kind of blends into one because we're all ultimately worshiping this higher power that we don't understand. No, God gave us his word so that we could know him in truth. And so please, Especially if you're younger in here, you're, the culture is hitting you so hard on this that you just got, you're, you're, you're just intolerant if you act like other people don't have what you have. I'm, I'm sorry, Jesus said, I'm the way, 
I am the truth. I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so if you buy into this false teaching, this false understanding that exists in our culture that just, just believe whatever you want because ultimately we're all seeking after the same God. It's not what Scripture says. That's what worshiping in truth is about, who God really is. And also, it gets to the, to the fact that this isn't about just what we say or what we sing, but it's about being authenticated through our life. It's about our, our actions supporting our words. I love what Pastor Louis Giglio says about this. He says, words amplified by an authentic life that flows from being spiritually remade within. It's words amplified by an authentic life. And so when we can talk about God, but if our life is living something else, then that's not worship. It doesn't mean we're not sinners and we're not struggle and we don't fail daily, but there's a humility and there is a dependence upon Jesus and there's a quick confession and there's a quick acknowledgement that we don't have it together. And so our lives authenticate the words that we say. So at this point, I'm sure this woman was quite dumbfounded by all that Jesus has given her. She's like, I wasn't expecting that. I just want to know, do we worship here or do we worship there, right? And Jesus unfolds the depths and riches of worship. And I think it's quite ironic that Jesus says worship is about dealing openly and honestly with God, and she's being quite evasive and unwilling to open her heart to Jesus. So we started out, are you willing to let God go into the depths of your heart? Are you, allow, are you going to be willing to personally go into the depths of your heart? Because if you want true worship to happen today in your life, it's not because we sang a song you liked or we did something here that you enjoyed, but it's whether you allowed the Holy Spirit to peer deep into your heart. And you came to the realization, as John the Baptist did, I've got to decrease Jesus, you got to increase. And that's the life I want. And that's the life I can't do apart from the Holy Spirit working in and through me. And if you don't have the Holy Spirit in your life, in your heart, if you're not the temple of the Holy Spirit, then you're fine with superficial religion and just going to church. But when the Holy Spirit takes up residence in your, in your heart and you're at all in tune with Him through His Word, then all of a sudden, everything about your life begins to change. And you say, wow, I want to authenticate this message. The greatest news that could ever be told, why should I not begin to line up my life in response to it? And Satan says, it's so hard, so difficult, you can't do it. And Jesus said, it is hard. But he says, take my yoke, which is a picture of the cattle that had the yoke on their necks, take my yoke upon you. He says, learn from me, for my burden is easy and light. Jesus says, you're not doing this alone. I'm the one doing the heavy work. I'm the one that's doing the heavy lifting. You trust me. You seek me. Seek my grace. And you'll find the strength that you need to say no to sin and yes to God. So, verse 25, she's clearly, even though she doesn't know what's going on, she understands there's some messianic implications to what Jesus is saying, and look how she responds. She says, 
I know that Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us all things. So what she's saying to Jesus, she's like, okay, this is, yeah, these questions are tough, and we can't figure this out. We've been arguing about this for hundreds of years. But when the Messiah comes, then we'll figure it out. Like, okay, so Jesus, we're in this together. You're smart. You're like a prophet. But we're, we're still both waiting on this Messiah who's going to come and bring us clarity to how we worship God. And I love how Jesus responds to her. Verse 26, he just straight out. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I who speak to you am he. And if you really want to nail this in the original language, and some of your versions say it, it says, I am, I am, I am. There was no doubt in her mind what Jesus was doing. He's recalling Moses' conversation with God at the burning bush. And he, Moses says, God, when I go to Egypt and talk to Pharaoh, who do, you say, who do I say sent me? And Jesus, God said, I am who I am. That's what you tell him. I am who I am. And so Jesus says, I am. I am the incarnate Son of God. I am eternal God. I am sustainer. When God was there in the beginning, I was with him. I am God. I'm the creator of all things. Take it on human flesh. I am the one who will die for your sin. I am the one who will raise again. I am, as I said, the way, the truth, the life. That's what he tells the lady who he is. I am. And it's interesting that Jesus is much more direct with this pagan Gentile unbeliever with his identity than he is with his own people. But he's straight with her. This is who I am. I am the Messiah. So if you allow the Holy Spirit to go to the depths of your heart today, then you know in your head God is seeking true worshipers. That, that's been revealed to you at this point. God is seeking true worshipers. He's seeking after someone who will worship him in spirit and in truth. God doesn't want your worship confined to a place on a day of the week. So no, God is seeking true worshipers. And as I say often, the heart starts with confession, admitting your need for help, admitting your need for grace. Don't cover, don't hide, don't change the subject. What about this theological issue? Or what about that? Or do we really have to do that? Or did God really say this? Don't do that. Just admit your need for grace. Admit your need. Cry out for grace. What happens is, if we make excuses, and we think that we're going to run after these other things that are going to, to fulfill our need, fulfill our appetites, it's going to inevitably, they're going to turn ugly. And they're going to bring you to your knees. Please, please confess before God today. Admit your need. And then for hands, this is really just one that you just live. Is life is worship. I quoted Romans 12.1 earlier in the sermon. I want to read it to you in the message paraphrase. Listen, this is so good. It says, so here's what I want you to do. God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. 
That's worship. A life of living sacrifice. At work, at school, at home, eating, sleeping, it all is an act of worship. That's the hands. God is seeking worshipers. Admit your need for grace and help, and then go and live through his power and his strength. Father God, we thank you for your word that's incredible, it's powerful, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, it says. God, I pray for your children here today. Help them not to refuse the Holy Spirit. Help them not to question the cost of coming clean and the cost of being honest and real and admitting their sins, God. Help them not to be like the woman at the well at this point where she's evading and she's unwilling to confess to Jesus what's really going on in her heart. Father God, I pray you'll help us just to come humbly before you. Help us to see that you, just, you reward humility. You reward confession. You bring healing and wholeness. And ultimately, you allow us to live for our purpose, which is to be a living sacrifice when we allow you to take the reins of our life. God, I pray for the person here who's really struggling right now. God, that the Spirit's conviction is overwhelming and they're fighting a battle within their heart. God, I pray that you will right now let them just to ask for your grace to see what sinners don't see, but only what's done by the supernatural work that you can do in their life. In Jesus' name, amen.